So as we look at Psalm 16 together, it'd be great to keep a Bible open nearby you to help sort of follow along. Now, Psalm 16 starts with probably the most common prayer request of all time. Keep me safe. It's a prayer that pretty much everyone would have uttered at some time in some way, even those who are not really religious. So when the plane hits heavy turbulence or you get caught in a strong rip at the beach or perhaps just the thought of facing a recession, help. If there's anyone out there, save me. It's not hard to imagine that around the world right now, it's the daily prayer of millions. Please keep me safe. Keep my family safe. Please keep us healthy. Now, even though David was a giant, killing, courageous warrior king, his life was filled with moments of danger and vulnerability. We don't know exactly what was going on in David's life as he wrote Psalm 16, which, as we've seen a few times in our psalm series, that's a helpful thing. It reminds us that this psalm is helpful for us all through our life. Like I said, all of us have felt the need to seek safety and security. But I think the, ma- the amazing thing about this psalm is how confident David is that God will answer that prayer. It seems to me that those who are sceptical about religion, including Christianity, can be pretty dismissive of the sort of confidence David seems to have. And look, if uh, that sort of scepticism describes you as you watch along this morning, uh, thanks so much for joining us, uh, especially if you're uh, watching to keep someone else happy. I hope it's time well spent. I think looking in from the outside, it must seem like a lot of religion and religious people treat God as if he's some kind of temperamental genie in a bottle. He's powerful, but sometimes needs convincing that he should help us. To be honest, sceptics look vindicated when Christians suffer just the same as everyone else, when our prayers for help seem to go unanswered. So the confidence we see in Psalm 16, we could look at it with scepticism as if it's yet another example of religious overconfidence, of blind faith. But when we think about what David is saying in this psalm, it firstly exposes that the God of the Bible, the God David prays to, is very different to a reluctant genie in the bottle. And secondly, as we work through this psalm, we see it's far from blind faith that David has. He gives us his reasons for his confidence. It's not just a blind optimism that some deity out there might like him. So if David had a view of God like most Australians do, my guess would be his prayer would finish at the first line. God, keep me safe. And then sort of just sees what happens. Because as I understand it, most Australians think God is there and God can help us, but that's it. There's no reason to assume that he will help us or to have any confidence that he cares about our life, certainly not the details. David, though, starts in verse 1, asking for safety because he has taken refuge in God. The idea is, David expects confidently that God will provide safety because David has turned to him and made God his refuge. That is, David has a relationship with God. He knows God is not distant or uncaring. And David has entrusted his life to God, see verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. The idea is he's made God the boss. He's the Lord, the ruler of David's life. And because of what David knows about God, he is fully confident that's the safest bet going around. So it actually seems that the opposite is also true. If we don't make God our refuge, if we don't entrust our life to him, then we don't have grounds for this same confidence. But what does David know about God that makes 
this such a safe bet? Well, Psalm 16 brings out something wonderful we see all through the Bible, but unfortunately often gets overlooked or gets missed, especially, I think, by those who are sceptical about Christianity. It's this. God actively seeks our good. God's desire is to bless people, which is to say, at the heart of what Christians believe, is a God who wants us to live the good life. Now, why do I say that often gets missed? Well, I think, unfairly, God often gets painted as a sort of a cosmic killjoy. But more to the point, do Christians really live the good life? Do people watch Christians and think, wow, they, they have a good? And even if we say that we do, does it look like it? Do we sound convincing? Now, for Christians, this is perhaps where Psalm 16 gets uncomfortable. As we read how David celebrates the good life that God gives, we might think, well, I'm not sure I feel the same way. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe God's holding out on me. So it's important for me to say, firstly, when I say the good life, I'm not talking about the Australian version of the good life. You know, leisure and wealth, the holiday house by the beach, a life that's free of pain and suffering and so on. I'm talking here about something far better. And more on that in a moment. But what we see in Psalm 16 is that God's plan for us is to live the good life which involves us doing something. The good life doesn't just fall into our laps. See, it turns out when David says he takes refuge in the Lord, that's not kind of a vague sentiment, it's not half-hearted, but it's a steadfast resolution. David's all in. He's single-minded in his approach to life and he intends to value God and relationship with him as the most important part of his life. God is David's refuge It's his safe place, his happy and content place all the time. It's not just a genie in a bottle that David pulls out in emergencies. David knows that his life is best lived with God, front and centre, not on the fringes of his life. Now, like I said, for Christians, this is where Psalm 16 gets a bit uncomfortable because who among us can say we do that well? Interestingly, as we'll see next week, David was far from perfect himself. But it seems that the purpose of Psalm 16 is not to make us feel like a failure or uh, we're missing out, but to encourage us uh, to keep resolving to put God first. It shows us how good it is to trust Him for our security. And so verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Now, David literally did have other good things in his life other than God. But this is a picture of single-minded resolve to treasure God above all else, trusting that having God in our lives is truly the best thing. Not easy, right? See, even if life isn't going that well, I'm sure for each of us, we could still say there are lots of good things in our lives. And we all know that those good things often become the best things in our lives, the things we treasure above all else, and then pour ourselves and our money into at great cost. It could be the beautiful home and garden. It could be our children and the life we're trying to give them. It could be our social lives. It could be our careers or our health and fitness. All good things, to be sure, but David doesn't trust them to bring him security. See, if we treasure anything that's temporary, our hearts being fixed on something that, by definition, will disappear or spoil or fade. So we see right, this right all around the world at the moment. Nothing is secure in the way we might have thought. And so when painful things happen, a job that gets lost overnight, a child who grows to hate us, 
or a home that loses a huge chunk of its value. If those are the things that we treasure above all else, or if it's what makes us feel safe and we lose it, it's not only painful, it's crushing and terrifying. As Jesus puts it, where our treasure is, there our heart will be. If our hearts are set on things that come and go, when they go, it will break our hearts, and so it will break us. Which means that God, the eternal, powerful, good God, God is the only safe bet. He is the best refuge. Putting God at the centre of the things we treasure, it's only then we can find real lasting security and real peace. Because after all, that is what we are designed to do. To have that sort of relationship with our Creator where we cherish and enjoy Him. But it's also the hardest thing for us to do. By nature, we don't usually want God and His will at the centre of our lives because, well, that's where my will tends to be. What happens if God's will is different to my will? Psalm 16 confidently says, the path of the good life is trusting that God's way really is the best way. That's what the life of faith is. A life trusting that God's promises are true and dependable. And it's not blind. We can put this to the test, as David did, and find out what does truly bring joy and peace and security. We can put this to the test by trusting that God really wants to give us the good life and actively trusting him by putting him at the centre of our lives, not on the fringes. As millions of people around the world would testify, myself included, it's the times in life when we are most actively trusting God that life is the richest and fullest, even when or especially when our circumstances aren't that great. It's those times that we trust God that we find joy in his safety. But the time we try and have the best of both worlds, following Jesus, but also having hearts captured by things of the world, well, when we try to have a foot in both camps, or as Jesus says, try to serve two masters, we know it doesn't work. To give us a concrete example of how this looks in our life, have a look at verse 3, where David talks about how his social life, his relationships, are all shaped by having God at the centre of his life, not what boosts his self-esteem or satisfies his ego. So verse 3, I say of the holy people who are in the lands, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. He's talking about God's people as those who bring most delight to him. And it's a pretty logical jump to make from treasuring God to delighting in his people. It's just finding delight in what God delights in. For David, it was the faithful people in Israel. And for us now, the idea is we can find delight in other Christians gathered in local churches. Church brings delight. So most Christians who have made this resolve to delight in God's people in the church will, will testify it is one of the greatest, richest parts of life to be a member of a church. Now I realise that will sound strange if you haven't had a great experience of church in the past or if you're watching along with someone without much church experience at all. From a distance, a, a church might look like or your experience might have been at, wor- at best a kind of a weird club or at worst, cold, formal, judgmental. But what God intends each local church to be is a set of real relationships where we don't just associate with each other and pop in and out as we're able, but where we actually join together. We share life with each other. We care for one another. We love one another. 
We get to praise God together, and together we get to work on projects like inviting and welcoming others in to join us, to, to teach children to know and love Jesus. It's a great joy to be part of a church that's working to be like that, trying to be like that. That's why so many are looking forward to meeting together again. We're not just a weird club. It's God's plan that we bring each other great delight. So many of you will have thought about or talked about the question, do, you know, do Christians need to go to church? Well, David here is like, well, why wouldn't you? It's such a great joy to meet with God's people and to share life, even if it's not perfect. As we heard in our kids' talk, it's what God has designed us for. So perhaps I can put it this way, knowing, of course, there are all sorts of reasons uh, someone might hesitate to go to a church or uh, to be reluctant to do more in terms of involvement than the bare minimum. What Psalm 16 is saying, and a lot of the Bible says, is that you're missing out on joy. And so if there's a great local church nearby you, I'm sure, like us, I would love to help you get involved and work through the next steps on how to connect. Uh, Matt, later in the service, will give you a few ways you might like to do that. If we're your local church, we'd love for you to join us. And so verse 3, David delights in God's people. In verse 4, David gives the other side of the coin. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Again, the logic is clear. If we resolve to have God at the centre, then... When we see others running after other gods, we see it for what it is, a fruitless task, a chasing after the winds. So we might see the ruthless pursuit of wealth or a single-minded devotion to a career or the need to provide every single opportunity for our kids, no matter what. Those things all involve acts of devotion, kind of like the pouring out of blood to try and please gods. But these things are temporary, fleeting, wealth, career, a children's happiness, all good things. But again, if temporary things are what we devote our lives to, what we attach our hearts to, suffering is inevitable. David sees it coming. David knows there is a better way than keeping up with the neighbours or trying to live the Australian dream, which often takes a pound of flesh to achieve. It might be tempting to get caught up in the same sorts of things that our neighbours devote themselves to. But Psalm 16 encourages to be single-minded in our devotion to God, trusting that God gives the path to the good life. It's a similar thought in verses 5 and 6, which challenges what our hearts are set on, perhaps financial security or an easy, luxurious retirement or the perfect house. Whatever it is, David challenges that. Verse 5, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. The language of boundary lines and inheritance echo Israel's history. They were given the land God promised. He appointed the boundary lines for them to live within. But for the priests, the clan of Levi, they were told their inheritance is God himself. Now that's true of Israel in general, So whether or not David is talking about literal property he owns, it reminds him that what God has already done has been so good for David. But ultimately, what God gives his people is himself. He gives his friendship, his blessing. And that is not something David takes lightly. Now, that might be easier said than done, perhaps. Just wishing to find delight in God doesn't make it so, especially if we're finding life hard. 
Again, the purpose of this psalm, this song, is to encourage us to keep working on our single-minded devotion. Keep resolving to treasure God beyond all else. Keep trusting that His desire for us is to live the good life. That His way really is the best way. So what does this good life look like? I've already said it's not the Australian version of the good life. It's better. And I think verses 7 to 11 give us a taste. What is this life supposed to be like? Verse 7. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. David and all those who trust in God find that life is not a profound mystery. God is a speaking, guiding, counselling God. In his word, he gives our lives purpose and direction. He gives us clarity. So as we grow in our understanding of the Bible, what God says, it's not just for knowledge, but every part of our life, all the details, it all comes with the counsel and guidance of God himself. Letting his words, scripture, shape our thinking and our desires, when an eternally wise God is involved in our decision-making, we're free to make decisions. We don't have to lie awake at night, crippled by the fear that we're setting ourselves up for failure. And what a great comfort that is as we plan for our futures in uncertain times. And so in verse 8, David resolves, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Christians of all people know that even the highest devotion to God doesn't spare us from hardship or suffering. Like, after all, we worship a king who was crucified because of his devotion. But we also know that if our hearts are set on what's unshakable, if our life is tied up with an eternal God, well, no matter what we encounter in life, we can confidently say that I will not be shaken. We won't lose hope or lose our heads when others watching us might think we should. Instead, even if our situation is terrible, we can still live the truly good life. So the Australian version of the good life is to maximise pleasure, avoid pain. But that's impossible. It's unrealistic, especially in the long run. Instead, having an unshakable confidence no matter what, you can't buy that. And it keeps getting better. Verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. A glad heart a tongue that rejoices, a body that finds peace and rest, the feeling of security, that is someone who knows that God isn't a genie in a bottle who is like our personal assistant in life. This is someone who appreciates the true value and worth of knowing God, of feeling so privileged that the eternal holy God would involve himself in our lives. What a joy it is to praise him because we know him. This is what God wants in our lives, joy, Gladness of heart, peace with him. Of course, all Christians know it doesn't always feel like it's described here. But I'm sure all of us have tasted this at different times. Having moments where we feel joy at God's presence, at his grace. We've enjoyed singing his praises or sharing how good he's been to us with others. Or perhaps having something troubling our minds and tossing and turning in bed and then turning to God in prayer and then finding rest. Having this grounding in our lives, an anchor, a foundation, it means we aren't quick to lose the plot when things go wrong. That's the normal Christian experience. 
Of course, we won't experience it perfectly, partly because we live in a world that's imperfect, and partly because it's hard for us to trust God enough to give us good things. The good life is to know God and to go to Him for joy and peace and security. That's true safety. As we get to verses 10 and 11, we see perhaps the best reason to trust completely that living God's way is the best way to live. We see this is not at all just blind faith or some foolish religious optimism. Verse 10 starts with a because. The reasons for David's resolute confidence and trust in God is based on the big picture. That is, God doesn't involve himself in our lives to make our lives just a little bit more comfortable. He does because God wants us to enjoy life with him for eternity. Verse 10. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. Verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The way David sees it, he's on the path to life. This path starts now, he's walking it now, and true life comes from knowing God now. But the destination on the path of life is eternal life. And so if peace and security and purpose in this life sound good, how about being completely full of joy, of having eternal pleasures in God's presence? David has unshakable confidence that he is safe on this path, that God will keep him on it. David has no doubts about his eternity and how good it will be. But the reason that we can share in this confidence that David has is because God has gone to great lengths to show us, to give us evidence that David is right. These verses about not being abandoned to the grave are a promise to God's people. And God shows us he has and he will keep this promise. We see this because Jesus did not see decay. The earliest disciples of Jesus, those who witnessed Jesus' resurrection, they understood what this resurrection meant on how it is such good news. So if you're able to flick in your Bible with me to Acts chapter 13, we see the Apostle Paul describing how all along God's plan was to keep his promises, showing that Jesus and his resurrection give us every confidence that we can completely entrust our lives to God. So we'll pick up one of Paul's sermons in Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 32. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I've become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never again, I'll never be subject to decay. As God said, I'll give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So as also stated elsewhere in his Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to attain under the law of Moses." The resurrection of Jesus is the evidence God gives us that we should share David's confidence, his feeling of safety. Because everyone, including David, who trusts God, will be raised to eternal life, just like Jesus. 
We want to be raised to stand before God, but the resurrection of Jesus, like Paul preached in Acts 13, shows us that in Jesus we have forgiveness of sin. We're set free from every sin. So as we turn to Jesus in repentance, we have nothing at all to fear on that day we stand before God. Instead, we can look forward to that day with no fear, with unshakable confidence, because it's Jesus and his death, his resurrection that guarantees our eternal safety, our eternal security and joy. His resurrection is the great sign, the great evidence that God is very good and that we can and we should entrust our lives entirely to him, resolving to make him the centre of our lives, to treasure him above all else. And Jesus' resurrection shows us that trusting in God, it may involve hardship. Like After all, Jesus trusted God enough to go to the cross. But the resurrection shows we really can trust that living God's way truly is the best way to live as we walk the path of life to eternal pleasures at his right hand. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, please keep us safe, for in you we take refuge. You are our Lord, and apart from you we have no good thing. You are our portion and our cup, our wonderful inheritance. You give us so many reasons to praise you, so many reasons to trust that your way is the best thing for our lives. And so please help us to trust you, to grow our resolve, to put you at the centre of our lives. Please help us be the place that we go for security and what we treasure most. Please help us make you uh, the thing that shapes our decisions and gives us the most joy. Thanks that in the resurrection of Jesus, you give us every confidence in your promises for eternal life. And so, please help us to live with that in mind on the path of life you have made known to us. Amen.